From the Moan Broadcast Center, it's Air Talk on 89.3 KBCC. I'm Libby Denkman in for Larry Mantle. Coming up after the news, we'll be answering your questions about COVID-19. Call, email, or hit us up on social media. Our medical expert can explain anything you want to know about the virus and how to stay safe. Then, if you're looking for a job, we know it's a pretty discouraging time. The economy is at a standstill and unemployment is sky high. But there are ways to make the most of your job-seeking time. In about 20 minutes, we'll talk to an expert with strategies and tips to hone that search and help you find a job, even during the pandemic. And later, we'll talk to our own Adolfo Guzman Lopez, who was hit in the neck by Long Beach police, firing less lethal ammunition during racial justice protests. That's 10 to noon right here on KBCC. Stay with us. Welcome to Air Talk on 89.3 KBCC. I'm Libby Denkman. In for Larry Mantle just one more day. Larry will be back on Monday. We are going to be talking about job seeking in about 20 minutes. If you have any questions about the best way to target your search or tips and tricks to really get your application and uh, get through that job seeking process in the most smooth way possible, get your application noticed, you can give us a call. Again, that's in about 20 minutes. And we have our own Adolfo Guzman Lopez, the correspondent who was covering racial justice protests in Long Beach and was hit in the neck by a less lethal round. He'll be here along with investigative reporter Aaron Mendelson at the end of the hour to talk about what they've learned about how Adolfo was hit by that foam uh, round, which caused serious uh, damage to his neck, and what those foam rounds mean for protest uh, law enforcement and uh, the the dangers that they can pose, especially when they ricochet from one person, ricochet from one person to another. Again, that's coming up later this hour, but right now we are in the thick of it here in Southern California. COVID-19 infections are spiking here and hospital capacity is strained. Yesterday, L.A. County reported over 2,200 people were hospitalized due to COVID, and it was the fifth day in a row where hospitalizations topped 2,200 people. Nearly 30 percent of those people in the hospital are in ICU. Naturally, you have questions about how to keep yourself and your family safe. And we're committed to connecting you with information that you can depend on here at Airtalk and at KBCC. So give us a call, 866-893-5722, to ask anything that you want to know about the virus and safety right now as the pandemic Uh, continues to surge here in Southern California. Or if you have headlines that you've been seeing, you've been wondering about the facts versus the fiction of some of the news coverage that's out there, uh, we're going to have more context with our guest, who is Richard Jackson, Dr. Richard Jackson, pediatrician, epidemiologist, and professor emeritus at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. And he has served in many leadership positions with the California Health Department, including as the state health officer for nine years. He also served as director of the CDC's National Center for Environmental Health. Dr. Jackson, thank you for being on AirTalk again. Hey, Libby, it's great to be with you again. So first off, I I see that Dr. Burks, Deborah Burks, who is in charge of the White House's coronavirus task force, 
did share some optimism with reporters this week saying that she's seeing levels of COVID-19 in the states where it has recently really been exploding, Texas, Florida, and uh, right here in California. She says those levels appear to be plateauing. Um, Of course, we are in no way uh, lessening the dangers that are posed by what's going on right now. Do you have any reaction to what we're seeing in terms of the infection rate in, in Southern California and in California as a whole? I think it's much too soon to be declaring victory. Uh, Debbie Burks may think she's ahead of that task force, but we all know that it's being dictated by the president himself. I, I think as we go forward, it's going to be very important that we don't do more harm with the advice we give. And we, the administration's been very slow to support masking. It worked very well in California. Uh, in fact, we probably let up too soon, but our governor has been very aggressive about saying this is how we need to protect ourselves. So there's lots of news coming out. You know, I, in preparation for this, I looked at the reports from CDC, research reports over the the last six months that had the word COVID in it, just the CDC publications had 40,000 of them. So there's an avalanche of information coming at people that even the editors of these journals can't keep up with. Yeah, I can't even imagine what that's like to try to sift through, especially when you're a public health uh, messaging official who's trying to give the clearest and best information possible. It is an overwhelming time, no doubt. Uh, Dr. Jackson, When you look at the states that have been surging, again, uh, Texas, Florida and and California being the worst right now, do you agree with people who believe that this is what we were seeing in New York in the Northeast just a couple of months ago and that uh, this kind of a spike is uh, just something that these states uh, are going to have to weather and then it'll start to drop the way that it did in New York Um, For me, it's confusing because I feel like California already went through a bit of a surge and now we're just back and and worse than ever. You know, I think in New York, there was this huge saturation of susceptibles and those very high numbers. And you you remember the freezer trucks outside the hospitals uh, there and people got pretty smart pretty fast in terms of wearing masks, washing their hands, keeping social distancing. Uh, but also being very aware of um, our neighbors and taking care of each other. California did a good job in the beginning. Um, Southern California, various places have been in a case of denial. And I think in many ways, denial is probably a very bad coping mechanism. Oh, I won't get it. I'm young. Uh, And we have fraternity members at Berkeley who are sick with this. So I won't get it. I'm only 12 years old. That wouldn't be said by a child. We're now getting data now that show infection rates between 10 and 19 are just as high as they are in adults. So there's new information all the time. The only thing we know for sure is keep your distance, wash your hands, wear a mask, and make sure the people with you are wearing masks. Yeah, here in Los Angeles, it's I won't get it. I'm a TikTok star <laughs> and I have big parties in uh, the Hollywood Hills uh, in order to you know post to social media. Uh, but I'm looking at uh, hospital capacity because, again, in the first surge, that was a huge concern. We had the Mercy ship, the Navy ship right. uh, docked in the uh, uh, San Pedro uh, uh, just to you know be there in case Los Angeles and the surrounding areas capacity was stretched to the breaking point. And again, we have the military stepping in, our own LEU 
investigative reporter here at KPCC and LAist reports that medical support teams from the Air Force are being deployed to two Los Angeles County hospitals. Uh, what is your uh, expert opinion about hospital capacity and what's happening right now with the pandemic? My look at all of this is that many of the hospitals are within a bed or two of being completely full in terms of intensive care. Um, it is very good news that we're getting help from other states. As you know, California doctors and nurses were going to New York uh, during their epidemic. They seem to have tapered down a bit. Um, we may need to look, and we are looking at external help um, to get through this, but uh, thinking that hospitals are going to fix this isn't enough. Um, every, each and every person has got to own this. Each and every school district is really going to have to be on top of this going forward. Douglas on Twitter writes in to ask, how reliable are current COVID tests? A friend that he spoke to thinks one in five tests show a false negative, but that seems like a high rate of unreliability to me. Uh, Douglas on Twitter's question, what, what's uh, your answer, Dr. Jackson? There are a couple of dozen tests out there right now, and I know they're trying to move to more and more reliability. Uh, my son works at CDC, and one of the problems is that the reporting has been a tower of Babel. And so some of the labs are reporting different codes with different levels of sensitivity and specificity. So really trying to make sense of that is very, very difficult. I know that the administration has moved to a private company in Pennsylvania that will be collecting these uh, data as well. Uh, but I, you know, I think if you get a negative test, that's probably good news, but don't celebrate too much because there is, there are failures to detect. And by the way, um, saying you have it, probably most of the time you will have it, but uh, the tests are getting better, but they're certainly not enough. That's really hard to hear, Dr. Jackson, because many of us, myself included, get a COVID test on a regular basis because my job takes me out in the public and takes me interacting with people. Um, do you fear false negatives giving people a false sense of security about going out and being a risk for infection or infected themselves? Libby, I think if you've had two or three tests and they're all negative, you're probably fine. But one single test, uh, perhaps uh, a month ago, um, isn't going to tell you very much about right now. So I, I think the testing is important, but uh, protecting yourself is going to be more important. I'm looking at a new uh, protein treatment, a story about this in the BBC, talking about uh, the preliminary results of a clinical trial suggesting a new treatment for COVID-19 that reduces the number of patients that need intensive care. And this UK company, uh, Synergen, used a protein called interferon beta, which the body produces when it gets a viral infection. And the protein is inhaled and it's used via nebulizer. And that apparently stimulates immune response according to clinical trials uh, Obviously, that's preliminary information. Dr. Richard Jackson with UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. What do you think about this protein treatment and other promising treatments that are in development? One is I only saw the news report on this, and I haven't seen the, the full um, description that was given to the equivalent of the British Food and Drug Administration. Sure. These companies that are developing uh, these studies 
have to disclose their progress to both the regulators but also probably to their stockholders at the same time. There are going to be many new treatments. By the way, interferon's been around for a long time. It's used in multiple sclerosis and, and other disease disorders. And so it plausibly could very much work. But, oh boy, um, so often in, uh, I've heard, oh, this is a wonder new treatment. And then when it's further tested, we find out, well, it really doesn't work on everybody. But there may be a subgroup, a very small group that it would work very well in. So I think there's plenty of need for further research. I, I think the real uh, inoculum that people need is a good vaccine. And we're not going to get out of this crisis that we're in without a good vaccine. 866-893-5722 to ask a question of Dr. Richard Jackson with the UCLA School of Public Health. And uh, online, you can email us on the Airtalk page at kbcc.org. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. What are the current recommended treatments when you're in a hospital? What are doctors going to be doing to try to help stabilize and and help get you through, um, especially when we hear about people who are uh, in serious condition because of this virus? Well, in the beginning, we call it supportive care, enough fluids uh, keeping the heart rate up, uh, getting the oxygen levels at a good level. We, We were talking about ventilators, but it looks like high pressure ventilation is not doing as much good as we thought in the beginning, but getting enough oxygen on board. Another issue is the viscosity of the blood. Um, in this infection, a lot of proteins are, if you will, dumped into the blood. And this may be one of the reasons that we're seeing increased strokes in people. And you've heard of COVID toes and other kinds of, um, if you will, vascular or perfusion uh, problems in population. Mm -hmm. There's a fair number of things under research now about really improving it. But it's right now, it's really supportive care. Again, it's Dr. Richard Jackson joining us uh, from UCLA. I see that congressional Democrats are uh, currently very impatient with the White House uh, for uh, downplaying the long-term effects of COVID. And uh, the president uh, apparently, uh, you know, in one of his briefings has said that, you know, 90 percent of the cases are harmless and they go away really quickly. I'm paraphrasing there. And these congressional Democrats are saying, listen, there are long term effects that arise from this virus. It's not just the immediate acute uh, risk of death, but we are seeing um, uh, symptoms and problems go on and on. What do we know so far about long term effects? I mean, it hasn't been that long. Uh, What are we seeing? You know, there's a CDC report that indicates that there are probably 10 times as many infections as there were illnesses in New York. So the prevalence of the virus is very, very high uh, as it's circulating, and one in 10 goes on to then show disease. I actually find people talk, oh, there's, you know, 40,000 cases, but in fact, they're talking about positive tests. And in our medical language, we a case is really someone who's ill with it. So yes, 90% of the people may get the infection, may carry it in their upper airways, uh, may even spread it, but they're not becoming ill. Those that become ill, and you talk, think about those capillaries not working, or the alveoli and the lungs being plugged, or the kidney damage, or the GI intestinal damage, um, I think it's too soon to say, oh, you're going to be fine after that. In fact, folks that I've talked to, uh, and I have a good friend that was in the hospital in Boston for a week with this, he hasn't been able to even go for a long walk two months later. So um, I think it's too soon to say you're out of the woods once you're better. 
And it's like breathlessness and things, pulmonary obstruction, that kind of thing that can last on and on. Yes. And in fact, uh, the shortness of breath, you know, your endurance um, could take months and even years, well, quite a long time to recover is what uh, we're seeing with some of these folks. 866-893-5722 to ask a question of Dr. Jackson to understand anything in your daily life that you are having a worry about when it comes to keeping yourself safe against this virus. I'm Libby Denkman in for Larry Mantle today on AirTalk. Again, you can ask a question on the AirTalk page at kbcc.org. You can also go online on social media. We are at Air Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Also coming up in about 10 minutes, we are going to be talking about job hunting in the pandemic and tips and tricks to really hone that search and make the most of your time. Libby Dankman in for Larry Mantle today on Air Talk, coming back in just a minute. Air Talk on KPCC. Libby Denkman here for Larry. He'll be back on Monday. Richard Jackson is here with us, pediatrician, epidemiologist, and professor emeritus at UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. We're taking your calls at 866-893-5722 and also questions online at kpcc.org or on the Facebook and Twitter accounts at AirTalk. There's a question coming in. Uh, What does the doctor think about the argument that kids not going back to school will have other health effects like cognitive and social development, which can be impactful on their health? You know, I'm so glad you asked this. I was on an earlier show where we talked about the American Academy of Pediatrics position that children not being in school, not socializing, missing these developmental stages they need to be going through, that that's really a problem. We should do what we can to get people and children back into the rhythm of school. Uh, That makes perfect sense. But at the same time, um, our poor schools are financially very stressed. Uh, Prop 13 made it worse and the removal of of wealth from uh, the lower half of our population over the last 40 years has made schools and the support of schools, very, very difficult. And many of our homeschooled kids, theoretically homeschooled children, don't even have computers in the home, or there may be the home was so crowded, it's an impossible place for children to learn. So I think going back to school, a general overall blanket statement about everybody needs to go back to school is absolutely wrong. We're going to have to be doing on a case-by-case basis, some, you know, small schoolhouse where people can pay attention to what's going on. That may make sense. Uh, Places with more uh, resources may be able to keep track of this better, but we're going to have to do this very carefully. It's uh, just saying everybody go back to school is absolutely wrong. I do fear about the uh, worsening inequality that this will expose because the schools that have the capacity, private schools that have funding in order to have socially distanced learning and uh, better technology, I mean, those kids are just going to be able to learn more effectively. Uh, and there's no two ways around it. And I, I just, it, it makes me really scared uh, for the future if, you know, kids just fall farther behind who are at the lower end of the economic scale. Um, more questions coming in on the AirTalk page. Let's see. We have uh, 
Scoot in Altadena says, I see a lot of families out and about where parents are wearing masks, but kids aren't. Should kids be wearing masks? It seems like we know now that they can definitely carry the virus. Dr. Jackson, what do you think? The Academy of Pediatrics position is that um, kids, children ought to be wearing masks, but recognizes that with toddlers and children under about four, it's very difficult to um, put that in place. Uh, And so, you know, you have to deal with the practical reality. But there's no reason older children can't put up with it. They've had to learn to deal with lots of other things in their lives, as have we all. Uh, So I want to, can I go back to your uh, inequality point? Yes, absolutely. I think it's absolutely true. And the reality is that all disasters, and this is a disaster, always impact the poor and most vulnerable first. We've got 155,000 homeless people in California, and the impacts there are tremendous. We've, you know, about 13% of the California population is Latino, Hispanic, and yet there are about 40% of the COVID cases. So you're absolutely right. And uh, we have, in many ways, we have such an imbalanced economic system in this country that it then any disaster is going to amplify and make worse those disparities, those inequalities. Hmm. A question from Michael and Whittier. If there's an interaction with someone closer than six feet, but it's really brief, what's the risk there? <laughs> um, it A, depends on how uh, infectious they are. If they got a brand new infection and uh, they're not wearing a mask and they're coughing, uh, there's probably a very significant risk. If uh, they're wearing a mask, uh, that reduces it. If you're wearing a mask too, that reduces it even more. Um, and the distance is better. And by the way, if you're in fresh air and sunlight, that reduces it even more. But it's, it's it, I hate to say it, but it's kind of mathematical. And the more risks you add, stacking one on another, the greater the risk it's going to be. Um, you know, I think you're probably not at a big risk from an occasional glancing, passing someone. Uh, probably not. But you want to be very careful about um, coming into contact more than that. Linda in Pasadena wants to know if a person has a temperature, are you supposed to call a doctor right away and stay at home? What are the best measures uh, at that point if you detect a temperature in somebody? Uh, you know, it, one is it's fever. So it's 100.5 or higher than that uh, in the Fahrenheit scale. Two is there are lots of reasons that people have fevers. My grand, grandson had um, a high fever for about three days, and it was very concerning. It turned out he had what we call uh, roseola, which is, blossomed into it. But you could imagine his physician father was uh, very concerned. I think if you do have a uh, an a fever, you ought to isolate, you ought to have people checking on you if it keeps going up or you're having the muscle aches, the re- particularly the respiratory problems, um, you need to let people know. Um, I think you could call the on-call nurse. The poor docs that are seeing a lot of patients probably can't deal with everyone having a little bit of a fever, but um, you ought to at least have people know about the situation you're in. Yeah, we're dealing again with hospital capacity and uh, and healthcare system capacity. Dr. Richard Jackson with the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health taking a couple more of your questions here on AirTalk. Christina in Agora Hills says, what happens once the vaccine comes out and only a portion of the population agrees to take it? Uh, and I'm adding to Christina's question or maybe is has access to it. How will this impact the life of the virus? 
One is the protocol for um, who gets the vaccine is still being developed. We don't have one yet, a vaccine, so, but we're going to have to look at the most susceptible members of the population, the docs and the nurses and the people taking care of most affected patients will have to be very high on that group. Clearly people in nursing homes, long-term care facilities and vulnerable for other reasons will have to come up front. That's just the way it is with almost all vaccines. But uh, ultimately it's gonna have to be supplied to the overall population. I would feel strongly that the government needs to pay for and supply that vaccine. Um, maybe with some help from your insurance, but a lot of people that are going to need it most won't have the finances, and particularly if they're charging high level, you know, making it expensive, $1,000 a shot, let's say, we're going to need to have ways to um, get it to everyone. It is said that you need about 60% of the population immune before you can begin to tamp down a, one of these epidemics. Uh, there are serious people that think it may need to be a higher level, if we call it herd immunity, than even 60%. So, um, and by the way, you don't assume that just because you've had the vaccine, if and when it comes, that you're not going to get it. If people are really given a big jolt, they can sometimes overcome their low level of immunity. Wow. By the way, I'll just stay with that for another minute. Yeah. I understand people's skepticism about the vaccines, and there's a lot of research that's going to have to uh, come out. Um, there are vaccines being used with RNA and other viruses as much as the surface coat of the of the virus. So um, there's a lot of science that's going to happen before. And believe me, the FDA and the CDC are not going to allow something to be used if it's going to do more harm than good. That's going to be very important to make sure you're doing more good than harm. Hmm. But I also hear you saying that just having the vaccine uh, developed and ready, it's not a switch that flips and everything is able to open up and we're good. I mean, there are just so many administrative and uh, uh, you know, soci- sociological issues that we're going to be dealing with. Um, a question from Dale in Fairfax. Uh, if someone is wearing their mask around their mouth but not covering their nose, how much good does it do? It's just shocking, isn't it, when you see someone covering their mouth and not their nose? I mean, this is not January. We've known this for a long time. It probably does a little bit of good, especially if you're a mouth breather, but that's not very attractive anyway. You need to have it over your nose and over your mouth. Tracy from Tustin has a question that I just have to get into you, doctor, because um, I've been thinking about facial hair a lot, looking at all the Dodgers uh, post uh, off-season uh, uh, beards and, and mustaches they've been growing since opening day was last night. Uh, Tracy from Tustin says, are there any studies looking at facial hair and whether the virus can accumulate in people's beards or mustaches? People emphasize that we should be washing our hands, and I would think it would be the same for beards as well. There's a lot of research <laughs> in terms of workplace exposures and beards, uh, something called NIOSH, National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, uh, really recommends people not have beards if you're in a workplace setting with lots of, if you will, chemical and other exposures. I have not, I would imagine the virus would last in, in hair for a fair amount of time, but I just have not looked at that closely. Sure. And uh, again, uh, Kike Hernandez and Cody Bellinger and everybody else who grew a beard or a mustache over the offseason, just take note of the medical research, guys. Uh, Molly in Mar Vista says, I work at LAX and tested positive for the virus and quarantined. 
Then I tested negative. Is there a chance I'll get it again? I work around a lot of people, so I'm wondering if I should continue to get tested. Again, that's Molly in Mar Vista, who works at LAX. Molly, I think you ought to. You know, first test may not have been perfect. Number two, uh, you are continuing to be exposed. Um, make sure you're protecting yourself when you're at work. But I think you ought to go ahead and get tested on a regular basis. And if your workplace is the source of that exposure, I think your employer needs to cover that. Especially at LAX, a, a hub of transit and something that I assume would be of very uh, big uh, importance for the uh, community transmission and and spread of this virus. Um, I mean, when you talk about an airport, especially, it it just seems uh, as though Molly uh, should definitely be extra careful. Am I reading that correctly? Yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, thank you for your work. Um, You know, we need folks uh, going to work and uh, we're grateful for their service and we need to protect them. Bob emailed AirTalk to ask, do you think that public officials lose credibility when they do not make a very clear distinction between the transmissibility of the virus outdoors compared with indoors? Dr. Jackson with the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health, this has to do with, I think, a a problem that's arisen of the messaging from public health officials being filtered through different lenses, depending on the news outlet you watch or the official that you listen to. Um, And people get frustrated when they hear things like the beaches are closed, but you can still go to Target. You're absolutely right. And and no one's got the communication on this perfect. A, um, you know, families with children at home, Sooner or later, you need to go to the beach. You need to get out. They need to run around. The beach is probably as good a place with the sunshine and the wind coming off the ocean as you could go, but you don't want to be within five feet of folks you don't know or six feet. I think um, being outside, again, um, beach volleyball where you're face-to-face on the other side of a net and breathing hard probably doesn't make sense, but in fact, it doesn't make sense because you don't know what that person has on board, but your little we call it bubble, your little family pod, uh, going and being together and having children uh, socialize, exercising amongst themselves makes perfect sense to me. So I don't necessarily agree with that restriction in the past. Uh, Final question is from Pamela from Irvine. How is recovery from COVID uh, similar or related uh, to uh, a type of pneumonia that Pamela had, Klebsiella, Uh, Klebsiella pneumonia. I am definitely not saying that correctly, doctor. Um, But Pamela says that she had pneumonia a few years ago. It took her about six months to recover. Is that similar to what we're seeing with COVID patients? COVID is a virus and the recovery is slow and there is on MRIs and other tests, there is residual lung damage. Uh, The vessels, the tiny little capillaries that are in there are scarred and are left with scar tissue. Klebsiella is a bacterial infection, and I suspect that um, her infection overlies some other disorder. Back in 1918, people thought that the bacterium Haemophilus influenza was causing the deaths, and it was actually came along on top of the viral infection back then. Just to stay with this for one more minute, because it's you know, Mr. Sure, Bad we just have here. about that much time. We're just about to wrap up, but okay. go ahead, doctor. Oh, the, 
I'm very concerned about what happens when we hit the regular flu season, and it's going to be very difficult. You know, flu is can be very tough. People probably will need to get their flu shots. It's not going to protect you from this virus, but it's not going to be an easy stretch come October, November, and December. That's Dr. Richard Jackson, pediatrician, epidemiologist, and professor emeritus at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. We, uh, on a daily basis, have medical experts here on AirTalk to answer your questions related to the pandemic and how to keep your family and yourself safe from COVID-19. Thanks to Dr. Jackson and all of our medical experts who have joined me this week. Uh, Again, I'm in for Larry Mantle. My name is Libby Denkman. Larry will be back on Monday. Coming up in about a minute, we are going to talk about the really tough job market that is making job seeking very difficult. But we want to help you make the most of your time, tips and tricks to really hone that job search. Again, Libby in for Larry today, back in one minute on AirTalk. Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Libby Denkman here with you for another 20 minutes or so. And then John Horn will be taking over for Film Week on a Friday. Well, as you've been hearing all morning on NPR, the extra $600 a week federal unemployment benefit, which was part of the CARES Act, aimed at making workers who have lost their jobs due to the coronavirus whole, that benefit is expiring. Congress has not extended the payments, and it's not clear if they will. Senate Republicans are signaling they may pass a reduced benefit, but it's far from a done deal. For Californians, EDD will not be sending that extra money uh, that extra money out after tomorrow. It's another blow for people who are struggling in this economy. Nationally, unemployment is at levels not seen since the Great Depression. Are you trying to find a job or looking to switch careers during the pandemic? It's really not an easy time. It's easy to be discouraged. But there are strategies that you can employ to target your search and make the most of your time. So we've invited an expert who can walk us through tips and tricks during this really tough time. Lori Shreve Blake is here, Senior Director of Alumni and Student Career Services at the USC Career Center. She's an expert in hiring trends, career management, and the multi-generational workplace. And Lori Shreve Blake, thanks so much for being back with us on AirTalk. Thanks so much for having me, Libby. So it's not all bad news. California did add more than a half million jobs between mid-May and mid-June. Of course, uh, a lot of those gains will be undercut by what we're seeing now with the surging COVID cases. But there are jobs out there. How should people go about finding them, Lori? Yes, definitely. Well, I think they should. What I tell our our students and alumni at USC is, number one, what type of job do you want? It's kind of three focus questions. Figure that out and take the blinders down. And maybe it's what you have currently been doing, but maybe there is something else that you could trans with your transferable skills that you could um, potentially pursue. Then the next question is, what organizations do you want to work for? Let's start to think about that. And one thing that I shared uh, with a lot of people over these last few months is that don't just look at the Fortune 500 companies that we've all heard of, the Googles, the um, Amazons, but look at companies that are um, doing really well right now and that are, um, what I say is follow the money trail. And so, you know, some companies that that I could mention right now really quickly, Brazen, People Grove, 
OutSchool, SAIC, Teachers Pay Teachers. These are companies that people haven't heard of. They're not kind of um, when we're having dinner, those aren't the companies that, you know, maybe are in the news or that we're talking about. But these companies have jobs. And so really kind of doing your research, doing the tough work, doing the research, finding out what who who is hiring, and then actually going for that. And then the third part of that focus question in terms of finding that job is networking. It's still, people still open doors for people. 80% of jobs come through networking. And so how many informational interviews have you done this week if you're looking for a job? And what is an informational interview? It's an interview you set up with an employee at a target company or with um, a hiring manager potentially or an HR person to learn more about that organization. Not asking for a job, but asking for information with the hopes that one person leads to the next person who leads to the job, Libby. And I, I want to get to networking in just one second, but I think that follow the money point is a really interesting one. Um, and these these companies that you mentioned, they might be uh, doing well because uh, I think one of them sounded like it might have been a distance learning company. I mean, there are ways in which the economy has stalled, but certain sectors of the economy have really uh, been strengthened because of the distance and COVID-19 protections. How do people... Uh, dig into that more and really understand it because it's it's a new ball game when you look at employment and the jobs that are available, right? Yes, it definitely is. Well, there's been a big increase in remote jobs. And then also, there's a lot of uh, great work around contingent um, jobs. So an organization that I heard about recently that I'd love to share with your listeners is Business Talent Group. And their business has totally gone uh, remote. They provide project work um, uh, to candidates from major employers, and they have um, opportunities all over the world, including CEO down. So if if an organization needs a temporary uh, CEO to come in for six months while they're doing their search for the right candidate, there's even those types of jobs. So looking at contingent work, looking at um, remote work, definitely. Um, And then, you know, all work is, if it's honest work, it's good work. And so at the end of the day, and what I've also been saying is, you know, how much ingenuity are we using? Don't put the brakes on your job search. You know, keep on keeping on. There's there's many different um, opportunities that are out there. And remote job sites, you know, Job Expresso, uh, Just Remote, there's a lot of great remote opportunities. So people really just need to um, dig in and, and keep on uh pursuing work. Lori Shreve Blake is Senior Director of Alumni and Student Career Services at the USC Career Center, and she's an expert in hiring trends, career management, and the multi-generational workplace. Her Twitter handle is at Lori with an I, Shreve Blake, and uh, we'll be sharing some of these organizations and and, uh, uh, work uh, place uh, job hunting uh, opportunities. The the uh, names that Lori is throwing out here, we'll share those on the Air Talk page later today. Uh, Business Talent Group was the one that she just mentioned. If you didn't get a chance to take it down, Libby Denkman in for Larry Mantle today. We're also taking your calls if you have any questions about the job hunting process or you want to share your experience out in the market. Eight six six eight nine three five seven two two. Lori Shreve Blake, you talked about networking. I mean, uh, the other day I just ran into this where a a reporter who's covering a similar topic that I do on a daily basis 
Um, we connected on Twitter, and then in a normal circumstance, I would have said, "Hey, let's get coffee," or you know, let's meet up at a the next press conference because we'll both be there. We cover the same issue. It's just not possible. I mean, isn't networking a lot harder when you can't actually meet in person? Actually, I think it's easier now than ever before. We can all get um, a Zoom account, a free Zoom account that will allow us to have a meeting up to, I believe, 45 minutes for free without any additional cost. Also, I think all of the people that you would want to be networking with, they're all at home right now. And even even if they are currently working, I think the idea of like not having to, you're still going to have to figure out a date and a time to meet, but not having to worry about, okay, are we going to Starbucks or am I, I going to have to get in my car? Am I going to have to deal with LA traffic? Although all of that stuff um, is not there anymore. So I think the opportunities to connect are even greater now because it's a quick um, Zoom call. And I, I think that can be scheduled pretty pretty easily. So I think actually the playing field has been leveled a little bit in that area. What about the students that are graduating from USC? I mean, I graduated right around the time uh, from undergrad that the economy crashed during uh, the last recession. And I know how painful it has been for uh, uh, students these days to kind of look out and think, gosh, this is the job market I am entering. I know that people are at different points in their career paths. What about very early career uh, folks who are just trying to get in? Yes. So um, what we tell graduating students is um, a lot of times when you graduate, you say, okay, I majored in entrepreneurship and I want to work in this particular area. And that's their focus. Um, and whether the economy is strong or whether there, you know, is a recession, I've lived through the dot-com burst, the great um, financial crisis, and now the pandemic. Um, and what I've found over the years of working at USC and coaching our students and alumni is that we do have to take the blinders down and say, yes, this was my major, and this is the one sector I want to go into, but what else is out there? And an example I would give is one where I was recently working with uh, one of our graduates who recently received a master's degree um, in software engineering and was really interested in working for the Yahoo's and all that. And then I had a conversation and said, well, hey, have you heard of this company? And it was, again, a company that um, people hadn't heard of. And this uh, alumnus went right after that and, and looked up the company, did their due diligence. And two weeks later, this person is now a junior software engineer. So, um, again, this is what we're telling our students. Be open to a micro-internship. Be open to an internship maybe after college. Um, Look at remote work. People are still getting hired. I know plenty of people who, you know, even during these hiring pauses that we're having right now, there are many organizations that, that say we're on a hiring freeze. We're not hiring now. But they are still hiring for essential employees. And so, um, you know, I know about people who are getting hired at, at various organizations. The UCs aren't hiring, but yet they are hiring. I know people who are getting hired. So. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, the contingent work when you're filling in for somebody who's on long-term medical leave or it's an interim job, but that's a way to get in the door. I mean, my current job at KPCC, it, it started as a, a long-term fill-in host position. And, um, you know, it's tough because 
you are not guaranteed that uh, time after maybe six months or whatever the contract is, but it is certainly the best way to go to get yourself known by that employer. Uh, Lori Shreve Blake is with us. She is the Senior Director of Alumni and Student Career Services at the USC Career Center. Uh, just one more minute here, uh, Lori. What's the final thing you want to leave people with if they're super discouraged, they're at home or they uh, are you know, only partially employed and they just uh, are feeling hopeless at this point. Yes. Well, I would say um, we are hopeful and not hopeless. Uh, I, when I looked at Indeed.com, there were 67,000 jobs. I looked at Simply Hired. There's 35,000 jobs. Tesla yesterday said that they've um, made the uh, profit for four quarters straight. They've never done that in the history of their company. Guess what? They're hiring. There are employers that are hiring you have to just um, continue to not put the brakes on the job search, mm-hmm. more informational interviews, look at those companies that maybe you haven't thought about before, follow the money trail. And um, ho- I would also say hone your virtual interviewing skills um, because now you're going to be interviewed virtually. And so how, how does that play out. Yeah, get comfortable on those Zoom calls. Practice with your family. I mean, practice with your friends. Lori Shreve Blake with the USC Center, uh, USC Career Center, as she was helping us look at uh, ways to really uh, uh, get through this tough job-seeking market. Also, off-air, Charles in West LA said there are many opportunities in support for different hospital systems right now at all levels of training and experience, many of which don't require a medical license or special certification. Charles says that could be custodial or technician-type work. So uh, he's just passing along that those jobs, uh, you know, can get mentioned right along with these uh, larger companies, especially now when we have hospitals under increasing strain due to the pandemic. Uh, Charles, thanks for calling in to air talk libby dankman here for larry mantle back in one minute libby dankman in for larry mantle film week starts in just about nine minutes here on kbcc and john horn will be here so thanks so much for listening to me this week while i filled in for larry and larry will be back on monday well, on May 31st, our own Adolfo Guzman Lopez was shot in the neck with a 40-millimeter foam round by a Long Beach Police Department officer. He was out covering uh, the ongoing protests for racial justice that have taken over the streets of Southern California. And the image of Adolfo's bloody and bruised throat really drew national condemnation from press freedom groups. Uh, Our own newsroom has been trying since then to figure out what happened that day, especially the question of whether Adolfo was targeted for being a journalist. We got some answers recently, and here to talk about that investigation is KPCC's Aaron Mendelson, investigative reporter, and Adolfo Guzman Lopez is also here. Hi, Aaron and Adolfo, and Adolfo, I'm so glad that you are back and covering higher education again uh, here in Southern California. Thanks for being with us. No, thanks a lot. The uh, support from you and uh, my KPCC colleagues has meant a lot. Really appreciate it. Aaron, uh, what do we know so far? What is Long Beach police, what have they said about what happened to Adolfo? Yeah, well, first, let me echo you. It's it's so great to hear Adolfo's voice on the air again. Yeah. Um, 
We met last week over Zoom with uh, Long Beach Police, and, and they uh, presented their findings to us. They said their belief is that Adolfo was struck by a ricocheted 40-millimeter foam round, so that an officer fired uh, his projectile, his or her projectile, that it ricocheted off something or somebody and then hit Adolfo. Um, they say no video actually captured this, but that the injuries are, are consistent with a, a ricocheted foam round. Um, and, and so I called around and, and it sounds like that is indeed a, a plausible theory. And you talked to a doctor who gave you a sense of what would have happened to Adolfo if uh, potentially this hadn't been a ricochet. I mean, this was a very frightening part of your reporting that you can find on LAist.com, by the way, Aaron Mendelson's full report. Uh, what did you learn from medical experts about the damage that these rounds can do? Um, yeah, it's awful to think about this, you know, given just how gnarly that wound uh, that Rodolfo uh, suffered was. But it, it, it could have been worse if it was a direct hit. Um, a, a doctor uh, told me that a direct hit to the neck could cause immediate life-threatening injuries. And this is a common uh, thing that police use in protest situations all across the country, right? These foam rounds. What do we know about their use uh, and their their dangers when they are used? Because I think initially we were calling them rubber bullets, but that just makes them sound kind of like friendly, like they're a Nerf gun. Right. And rubber bullets and foam rounds are a similar type of weapon. Um, they, they become more popular as a, as a less lethal option. So, you know, a way for police to fire at someone that um, is less likely to, to kill them. Uh, but especially in these protest settings, like the one that Adolfo was covering in, in Long Beach, you know, if, if you fire towards a crowd of people, these things are known to bounce around uh, and it can injure another person. And, and that seems to be what happened here. Is Long Beach police uh, going to uh, offer any kind of change in their policy for the use of these uh, foam rounds? Or have they uh, responded in terms of the dangers of ricocheting foam rounds, which obviously uh, extremely dangerous once an officer pulls a trigger, they don't know where that round is going to go? Yeah, we haven't heard anything in terms of a policy change. Um, the department used to use uh, beanbag rounds until about 2013. And I talked to one use of force expert uh, who studies these types of weapons who told me that that though he prefers those because they don't ricochet. Adolfo uh, Guzman Lopez also on the line. Adolfo, how are you feeling uh, and what are the questions that are still in your mind about what happened to you that day, May 31st? Oh, I'm feeling a lot better. Um, you know, the 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 physical recovery um really really took maybe a week and a half, two weeks. Um the the injury scarred pretty quickly. Uh I was on I was on a steroid to reduce the inflammation. I I never lost my voice. I, I was able to speak, uh, but I went to an ENT and he said, okay, try not to speak and, and that sort of thing. But the the emotional recovery took longer. Um, you know, the first day, uh, a day and a half. I mean, you can imagine the adrenaline from having gone through that, and then my body coming down from that adrenaline. I was off from work, so and you know, my my wife works from home, and we had the kids, and I was kind of left <laughs> left to just kind of deal with it on my own and l- luckily i did have a lot of messages from from people and and that sort of thing uh so the recovery has been 
has has been going well. I'm I'm really like back to I don't know if normal. I want to say the word normal, but yeah. what is normal after having gone through something like this, right? Long Beach police, you know, say that uh, likely one of the reasons they fired into the crowd of protesters were some bottles being thrown. What's your take on their reasoning for using these rounds and the dangers that they pose to the protesters, Adolfo? So, so I think that one of the most important things to come out of uh, out of this is 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 the police investigation and the findings. So what they showed us, they pledged to make public. So hopefully the public will be able to see uh, the videos that they showed us and uh, and maybe even some more information, um, you know, sometime soon. I, I had a lot of anticipation before that meeting. Okay, what's it going to show? Am I going to see myself being shot or not? And like um, Aaron said, it, there was none of that. No video uh, available or or anything like that. But uh, I'm so sorry we're up against a break, Adolfo. But of course, we will stay on this. And also the use of these rounds uh, against people demonstrating and the policy behind them here in uh, law enforcement communities in Southern California. Film Week is up next. Thanks for listening. From the Moan Broadcast Center, it's Film Week. Good morning. I'm John Horn, in for Larry Mantle. This week, our critics Leo Lowenstein, Wade Major, and Charles Solomon review Animal Crackers. It's an animated film starring Emily Blunt and John Krasinski. The HBO documentary Stockton on My Mind. It follows Michael Tubbs' tenure as the first African-American mayor of his hometown of Stockton, California. We'll also hear about the Canadian crime thriller Most Wanted, starring Jim Gavigan and Josh Hartnett. Plus, my interview with director and producer Linda Goldstein-Knowlton about her documentary, We Are the Radical Monarchs. It spotlights an Oakland-based alternative to the Girl Scouts for young girls of color. All that and more film reviews are just ahead on Film Week here on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. It's Film Week. I am John Horn sitting in for Larry Mantle. I'm the host of the Elliott Studios podcast, Hollywood the Sequel. Coming up on today's show, we'll chat with director and producer Linda Goldstein-Knowlton. Her new documentary, We Are the Radical Monarchs, follows the Oakland scouting troop, the Radical Monarchs, and explores their mission to train young girls to be the next generation of social justice activists. But first, joining us to review this week's new releases are Wade Major, film critic for KPCC and Synagogues.com, Lael Lowenstein, film columnist for the Santa Monica Daily Press, and Charles Solomon, film critic for KPCC, Animation Scoop, and Animation Magazine. Wade, Lael, Charles, a virtual welcome to all of you. Thank you. Virtual greetings. So let's begin with the animated film Animal Crackers. It's a co-production among the United States, China, and Spain. It's directed by Scott Christian Seva and Tony Bancroft, Emily Blunt, John Krasinski, and Ian McKellen star, along with Danny DeVito and Sylvester Stallone. Charles, let's get going with you. Well, this was actually completed in 2017, and it's been on the shelf since then where it should have stayed, <laughs> uh, as it's pretty terrible. The plot is so convoluted and needlessly complicated that the filmmakers, the characters, and the audience keep tripping over the snarls. There's 
magic that works some ways sometimes and not others. There are characters who appear and disappear. Um, and then you play the usual game of, oh, that's designed like Mr. Incredible. That's the I just want to be king montage from Lion King. There are the animal designs so similar to the animals from the Madagascar uh, franchise. It's it just doesn't work. Wade, can you uh, can you add anything to that? I, I can add very little. I, I have a conflict of interest where this film's concerned. I actually uh, know two of the main producers quite well, and my wife was uh, was hired to deliver it to Netflix. So I kind of lived with this film for about six months. So I have very little objectivity and perspective on it. But I will say that I I really love a lot of the voice casting. I. Uh, Patrick Warburton can do no wrong by me, and as many times as I've seen this film on a loop in the house over the many months, uh, he consistently makes me laugh. So I will always give props to Patrick Warburton. We're talking about Animal Crackers. It's directed by Scott Christian Sava and Tony Bancroft and starring Emily Blunt and John Krasinski. It's unrated, and it's streaming on Netflix. Now let's go to We Are the Radical Monarchs. It's a documentary. It's directed by Linda Goldstein Knowlton, and it's about an alternative group to the Girl Scouts, specifically for young girls of color. And the film follows the first ever Radical Monarchs troop in Oakland over the course of three years. Lael. I really love this documentary. It, uh, so it, as you said, John, it, it looks at an alternative to the Girl Scouts um, formed by two women of color, uh, the idea was, and this is in the in the Oakland area, to offer uh, a a group where girls of color specifically could become empowered. Um, they learn about LGBTQ issues. They learn about um, uh, environmental activism. They learn about Black Lives Matter. And this all sounds like a lot for young girls who are seven, eight, nine years old. But what's important about it is that it gets them from a very young age to start thinking about representation of girls and women in media, um, to think about um, alternatives to general forms of indoctrination that they may have been seeing in the media. Um, and it's, it's a really, really powerful, reassuring and inspirational kind of look at uh, what's possible um, it's not anti-Girl Scout at all. It just simply offers um, a more progressive and kind of a hopeful path. Now, of course, there have been those who have attacked uh, the movements of the radical monarchs in, a, in the Twitter and cancel culture generation. Uh, we've, we've seen that. Um, but uh, there have also been pleas to establish more ra radical monarch groups. And this has happened across the or starting to happen slowly across the country. But I thought it was a wonderful uh, and very inspiring film. Charles? Well, I think it's you respond more to the cast than the filmmaking. You really see these girls over the course of the film gain confidence. And one girl who's too shy to more than whisper when she's kind of hiding behind something becomes one of the most outspoken in the troupe. And it's, again, as Lyle says, it's very upbeat, it's reassuring, it's affirming. Uh, one thing that puzzled me is that there, there don't seem to be any Asian girls in the troupe, although Oakland is, I believe, about 15% Asian population. And I wondered about that. But uh, you would have to be an absolute Grinch not to be taken with these girls and watching them grow and mature and develop ideas and, and learning to express them. 
The other thing that I think is interesting about this film is even though it was four years in the making, what the girls start talking about, things like Black Lives Matter, immigration, even rent relief, are incredibly topical now. And I imagine that these girls who are now a little bit older than they were in the film are probably out there marching and making sure that these issues are not forgotten. We Are the Radical Monarchs is the name of the documentary. Linda Goldstein-Knowlton is its director and producer. It's unrated. It's available now via PBS.org and the PBS app. And again, we'll hear more on the making of this film when we talk to Linda later this hour. Coming up next, the Canadian crime thriller Most Wanted. It's written and directed by Daniel Roby. It's about a journalist trying to prove a man's innocence after he was forced into a dangerous drug deal against his will. It stars Antoine Olivier Pallon, Jim Gaffigan, and Josh Hartnett. Wade, what do you think of the journalist trying to do good work? Boy, I, I have all kinds of admiration for the actual people uh, on whom this story is based. It is a, it's, a, it's a really fascinating story. I did a little bit of research after the fact on it. I just wish that the execution were up to the intent, uh, A for effort, C for maybe C-plus for execution. I think part of the problem is that it's a, it's a fairly convoluted story, and you, you jump around a lot. You, you're dealing, it's basically the story of a, of a, of a guy, kind of a, a street kid, who, who winds up being duped into a, a drug deal and um, uh, the, where he's not really the guilty party, but you know, justice is not served. And Josh Hartnett plays the, the journalist who was on top of this story, a guy who's kind of trying to redeem his career as well and not just be a stringer. And um, so there are there a lot of different character arcs that are all overlapping and interconnecting. And you jump around between them so frequently that it, it it's a little bit disorienting. It's hard to sort of wrap yourself around any one storyline, any one part of the story. Um, they, they couldn't quite synchronize all of the simultaneous events and it's unfortunate because it really deserves a better film. It's not a bad film, but I, I do think that the, the topic is a little bit too cumbersome for what they tried to do. Lael? I pretty much agree with Wade. It, you know, I'm all for crusading journalists, and any time you got a, you've got a spotlight or a Woodward and Bernstein or, or anything like that where, you know, a, a journalist is trying to expose corruption, um, I am just by nature going to be interested in it. Um, however, having said that, this is one of the sort of least gripping um, crime thrillers that I could imagine. Um, like Wade said, there's just too many story arcs going on at one time. You don't feel terribly invested in the characters, even though it's quite a, like a remarkable story. And the, the stuff that this is based on is really interesting. The fact that the, the guy who's arrested just happened to have the same name as someone who was a criminal, but this guy wasn't. So, um, you know, it just does show the failure of the, this particular legal system and some interesting things about the Thai prison system. Um, and uh, so that was, in that respect, it was interesting, but it, it was really just sort of a little bit anemic. And would we buy Josh Hartnett if he walked into the KPCC newsroom and said he was a journalist? Yes, I think you would. Okay. That is Most Wanted. It's from writer-director Daniel Roby. It stars Antoine Olivier Pallon. The film is rated R, and you can watch it available on video-on-demand platforms, including Vudu and Fandango Now. Now a film called Fisherman's Friends. It sounds like a hand cream, but it's not. It's a British comedic drama directed by Chris Fogan and starring Daniel Mays and James Purifoy. Wade? The delight of the week. This is one of those uh, fantastic 
working class wish fulfillment dream come true movies that the British do routinely and they do so well. So if you love the Full Monty, Calendar Girls, Billy Elliot, Brassed Off, uh, any of any of the films in that subgenre, you will absolutely love this. It's based on the true story of a group of Cornish fishermen who a few years ago were discovered by record executives and they wound up recording uh, an album of old seamen's shanties, which has since become the, the biggest selling the, uh, uh, folk album of all time. And this is the story of, you know, obviously fictionalized to some degree, but the story of those fishermen, the uh, record executive who puts it all on the line to try to bring them their talent to market. There's a romance in it. Of course, it has to be a little bit of a romantic comedy. Um, but it, you, you've been here before. You've hit all of these beats before. But there, there's, it's like a, it's like an old warm blanket. It just feels so good and it's so cozy. And if you've been cooped up at home like so many of us have, it's the right movie at the right time. And how do you make a movie like this without having Bill Nye in some part? How do they do that? Uh, you know what? They dig up some amazing uh, actors from the U.K. Uh, who, who stand in for Bill Nye. I mean, it's a great cast. And you're going to recognize all the faces. But it's really a, it's a wonderful movie. Fisherman's Friends is the film. It's directed by Chris Fogan and stars Daniel Mays and James Purifoy. It's rated PG-13. It's available on video-on-demand platforms, including Google Play and iTunes. Now, Stockton on My Mind is a documentary from HBO. It's directed by Mark Levin, and it follows Michael Tubbs' tenure as the first African-American mayor of his hometown, Stockton, California. Leo? Yes, this is a really fascinating story, and I didn't know that much about it. Tubbs, who is a millennial, was elected mayor of his hometown the same day that Trump was elected. Um, and it became, you know, it was this sort of fascinating study in contrast that that this young guy who grew up amid poverty and, and violence um, uh, won a scholarship to Stanford and, um, and then decided to run for city council in Stockton. And Stockton, by the way, is one of the most troubled uh, cities in the U.S. and had um, has declared, I think it's the largest city to declare bankruptcy, possibly, and um, has had, you know, all kinds of economic problems and issues with homelessness and, and, and crime. And, and Tubbs uh, sort of put together a coalition, um, which is sort of like this dream team almost, to try to solve these problems. And a lot of the initiatives are really, really interesting. There's one called Advanced Peace, where they will take someone who has been incarcerated and 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 sort of you know come come about learning a different way of life and teach youth who are potentially um, going to be drawn to a life of crime. They also had economic stimulus initiatives and um, the interviews with Tubbs and his staff are, are really just sort of a uh, kind of a fascinating look at a different kind of approach to politics to solving the problems of a city like Stockton. And I, I thought for the most part, it's a pretty good doc. I would have liked it to be a little more focused because it sort of meanders a bit. Like there's, you know, at, at times I wasn't sure whether the focus was supposed to be on Tubbs or on Stockton. And of course, Tubbs and Stockton are very much one in the, they're very much intertwined. But, you know, it sort of goes in a few different directions. But for the most part, I think it's a really interesting doc and a look at someone who's going to be, continue to be a formidable population 
politician and who I hope continues to turn Stockton around. Stockton on My Mind is directed by Mark Levin. The documentary is unrated and premieres on all HBO platforms on July 28th. It will be available on video on demand on July 29th. And Kissing Booth 2, I Missed Kissing Booth 1, is a teen romantic comedy starring Joey King and Joel Courtney. Vince Marcello directs the film and also wrote the screenplay with J. Arnold Wade. Kissing Booth 2. Well, I am the person to review a movie aimed squarely at teenage girls, let me tell you that. Um, because I'm, I'm the father of one who's going to be a teenage girl within uh, only a few years. So I take a great deal of interest in movies that I don't understand. And uh, I did not see Kissing Booth 1 either, but it was a huge hit for Netflix. So catching up on this, it's actually quite interesting. It's not a very good film. But it's a really engaging film, and it's engaging because Joy King, who stars, is quite a charismatic and engaging actress. She's, you can't take your eyes off her. She's, uh, she's a little bit quirky. She's funny. She's very self-confident. She narrates the film almost as if it's adhering to her diary. And uh, the first Kissing Booth was really kind of a straightforward teen high school romance where a kissing booth at a, at a carnival is how she is able to sort of uh, land the guy of her dreams, who's the older brother of her best friend. And this kind of continues that story. Now the guy, Noah, he's gone to college, and she's a little bit lonely, but she's still in high school. And there are all of these other uh, teenage events that that, uh, that arise. And this has more breakups and makeups and hookups than, uh, than uh, half a dozen of these movies normally would. It's basically a PG-13 version of what would normally be a Disney Channel teen film. It has all the same rhythms and the same beats and the same kinds of performances. Um, but if you're the age group that this is targeted at, you will find it absolutely wonderful. They don't really hold anything back for a third film. This has, like, climaxes. Kissing Booth 2 is available on Netflix. It's unrated. More reviews are just ahead on Film Week. Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. I'm John Horn in today for Larry Mantle, and we're joined by our Film Week critics, Wade Major of Synagogues.com, Lael Lowenstein of the Santa Monica Daily Press, and Charles Solomon for Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. Now, the documentary Helmut Newton, The Bad and the Beautiful, it takes a closer look at the life and career of the fashion photographer Helmut Newton. The film is written and directed by Gero von Bohm. Lael? Charles, who wants to go? Um, I'll jump in. Uh, I didn't care much for the film or its subject. Um, You know, Newton is famous for taking photos of nude women in high heels and nude women with chains and nude women looking like they're being eaten by alligators, all in the service of things like Vogue selling overpriced clothes that nobody really needs. <laughs> and a lot of the people in this seem to be spending their trying tr- time trying to say, oh, this isn't really exploitative. This isn't really objectifying women. When if you look at the photographs, they obviously are. And the really interesting moment in the film is when Susan Sontag on a talk show in excellent French dismisses his objections that, oh, I love women. And she said, a lot of misogynists <clears throat> And uh, people who exploit women's images say that these images are. And you think right on Susan. And that's the the high point of the film. Leo? Um, 
I partially agree with Charles. I think it's really interesting to have this movie come out the same week as we, as we are radical monarchs, which deals, you know, with actual female empowerment and, and educating girls on um, the media representations of women. So since Helmut Newton was such a big part of the media representations of women in magazines like Vogue and, and other high fashion forums for, for many decades, it's kind of a fascinating juxtaposition. Um, whether or not his images are misogynistic, I think it's not quite as clear cut as that. The argument is made that um, that these these sort of Amazonian, um, like very tall, very fit women, among them Grace Jones um, uh, and and some of these supermodels, Nadja Auerman. Um, um, Hannah Shigula, the the actress, were um, were depicted n- naked, but they also had this sort of glassy, glossy, very hard stare that was kind of in- inviting the male gaze, but also keeping it at a distance at the same time. So the point is made that yeah, they're they could be superficially viewed as misogynistic, but there's also a winking quality to his work. I don't know. I I, I think you can argue both sides. The problem that I had with the documentary was just that it became repetitive, that it didn't really do much after about 45 minutes. It sort of rehashed a lot of the same territory. And a lot of the footage was shot quite some time ago, like like maybe 30 years ago. I couldn't really tell from whence it came, um, but it was sort of cut in with, with a lot of these interviews, that some of which were actually kind of interesting about just the way he worked as a photographer. And Anna Wintour, of course, um, in her in her dark sunglasses, talking about working with him. I mean, Helmut was a was a fascinating artist, and um, some of his stuff was really crazy and foreshadowed people like David LaChapelle and things like that in terms of some of the wackiness of it. Um, but uh, you know, yes, it's it's somewhat controversial his work, and uh, it's a mixed bag as a film. The documentary is called Helmut Newton, The Bad and the Beautiful. It's from writer-director Jero Von Boom. You could watch the documentary on Lemley's Virtual Cinema and the Frida Virtual Cinema. Now the British biographical drama Radioactive. It explores the relationship and scientific accomplishments between chemist Marie Curie and her husband Pierre Curie. The film stars Rosamund Pike and Sam Riley. It's directed by Marjan Satrapi. Lael? Oh, I, you know... So I started out thinking this was sort of just a, a by-the-book documentary of Marie Curie, and there was a one done earlier with Greer Garson that um, is sort of, I guess, the, the, the standard one up until now. Um, the first half of this documentary I thought was a little bit almost cheesy. There were some moments where um, it just sort of was over the top in terms of like when Pierre and Marie first kiss, there are there's some sort of electric or fire uh, going on. And so they have sparks, in other words. Yes, they have sparks. I mean, it was, you know, a little bit too obvious, some of the stuff. And, you know, and I thought, God, this is really not a very original um, biopic. But then the second half um, is where it really kind of took off. It, uh, it it explains the fact that Curie was really sort of disliked both by the establishment and by um, French people. She was originally from Poland and she was regarded as an immigrant and they would you know tell her to go back to Poland. Pierre, her husband, died in 1906, tragically in an accident. So she outlived him by almost 30 years. And she went on to win 
the Nobel Prize, not just once, which she did with him, but twice, um, having discovered radium and polonium uh, with him and then gone on to do other work on her own. Um, what, what I thought was really interesting about Satrapi's look at Curie was the way she takes um, the discovery of radium and polonium and, and shows sort of the, the bad that could come of it. She flashes forward to moments like Hiroshima and flashes forward to moments like a child being cured of cancer um, with chemotherapy. And all of these things became possible because of her discoveries. But there's also, you know, very negative um, outcome as well that that was a result of her work. So it, it just it sort of started out very sort of generic and then became kind of really sort of interesting and, and surprising. Wade, what was your take? Yeah, I, I think those, those little surrealistic detours were a little laying it on a little bit thick for me. And I'm trying to be forgiving because Marjan Satrapi is, of course, originally a graphic novelist. Uh, she her she kind of came of age with graphic novels that she then adapted into movies, beginning with um, Persepolis and and Chicken with Plums. Persepolis was animated, Chicken with Plums live action. Since then, she's kind of uh, gone been on over, all over the map as a filmmaker, and this is a little bit returning to those roots. So I, I appreciate that she's bringing a certain kind of surrealistic, nonlinear sensibility to the story. But that said, it doesn't work as well for me in those moments. I'm, I'm a big fan of Marie Curie. I love the old Greer Garson, Walter Pigeon film. I mean, it's one of the great memories of my, my childhood. And there was also a Marie Curie film uh, made in France, a French-Polish co-production four years ago called Marie Curie, The Courage of Knowledge, starring uh, Polish actress Karolina Gruszka, who is extraordinary. And not to take anything away from this film, uh, which has a lot of lovely stuff in it, but that one feels more authentic, feels closer to who she was, and, and does a better job, I think, of getting inside the relationship and the characters. Here, um, it feels like they're just really trying to wrap their arms around uh, an awful lot thematically, in addition to trying to develop the characters, and that sometimes feels like a little bit of a mouthful. The film is radioactive. It's directed by Marjan Sutrapi. It stars Rosamund Pike and Sam Riley. The film is rated PG-13, and it is streaming on Amazon Prime Video. We continue with Yes, God, Yes. It's a comedic drama. It's Karen Maine's feature directing debut. Natalie Dyer, Timothy Simon, and Wolfgang Novogratz star. Wade, why don't you start us with this one? Boy, I just kept thinking I wish this were the edge of 17 because it, it reminded me of it and it felt like a pale imitation of it in many respects. Um, Karen Maine made a short film on this subject uh, in 2017 and uh, went and brought Natalia Dyer back from the short film to, to star in this. And Natalia Dyer, for anyone who's seen Stranger Things, is a wonderful actress. She has a, a, a tremendous presence, especially when she's just emoting and not saying anything. She's still very, very captivating. So you can't help but sort of keep your eyes on her. But it, it, I, I don't know that it gets its tone quite right. It, it means to be a little bit sardonic in the way that it looks at this girl who's uh, very conservative and has a very kind of sheltered upbringing uh, in the early 2000s and not quite connected to her sense of sexuality and, you know, how boys and girls are supposed to relate. And so she goes to this camp, this very, very Catholic religious camp affiliated with her, her school, and um, there, you know, is exposed to a whole litany of things that sort of open her horizon sexually and, and in, in terms of relationships. Um, but you're never quite sure, is the film being 
you know, uh, intentionally sarcastic? Is it being, is it, does it mean to ridicule? Is it being a little bit goofy? The tone is kind of wishy-washy, and it does feel at times like a short film stretched too thin. Leo? Yes, um, pretty much right on, Wade. I, I, I did like Natalia Dyer very much. She has, in fact, a very expressive face, and some there are many close-ups where she's just sort of not even rolling her eyes, but you can just sort of feel the frustration coming out of her. Um, and uh, she was excellent. It feels a bit thin. It feels a bit underwritten. feels like it really should have been maybe a longer short than, a, than it was. Um, but maybe not quite a full feature. And um, I agree, the tone was kind of the problem. But for the for the most part, I thought it was charming. And, you know, you, you could certainly do worse than a Natalia Dyer quasi-comedy. Yes, God, Yes is written and directed by Karen Main. It stars Natalia Dyer and Timothy Simon. It's rated R. It's streaming on Lemley's Virtual Cinema. The film will become available on video on demand next week. Next, The Rental. It's Dave Franco's directing debut. He also co-wrote the film alongside Joe Swanberg. The horror thriller stars Allison Brie, Dan Stevens, and Jeremy Allen White. Wade? Yeah, they're doing this at a bunch of drive-ins, and that's probably the best way to see this. Um, it's about two couples that go for a weekend uh, getaway in a, an Airbnb, and nothing goes wrong. Isn't that wonderful? Of course not. Uh, two couples go away for an Airbnb, and of course there's a psychopathic killer that's going to you know, wreak havoc on them once they've turned the suspense screws uh, for about an hour and a half. And that's more or less what happens here. Uh, Dan Stevens is a great actor. I don't know why he's necessarily doing this. He, he elevates the material somewhat, but otherwise it's really pro forma. And uh, everybody, you know, gets upset at everybody else right on cue. And then, you know, murders start right on cue and cars fail to start right on cue. And it, if, you've, if you've seen one of these, you've seen this one. So the rental, too, if there is such a thing, will be about the Airbnb where the COVID precautions have not taken place and the place is not hygienic when you arrive? Yeah, probably. The rental is Dave Franco's directorial debut. Speaking of drive-ins, you can go see the R-rated film at the Mission Tiki Drive-In in Montclair, the Van Buren Drive-In in Riverside, and Vineland Drive-In in the City of Industry. The film is also available on most video-on-demand platforms. Retaliation is a drama starring Orlando Bloom, Janet Montgomery, and Charlie Creed Miles. It is written and directed by the brothers Ludwig and Paul Shamasian. Wade? Uh, this is an absolute grueling, grueling sit. I, I can't say that this is an enjoyable film on any level, but it's not supposed to be. Uh, it is um, It is a very, very penetrating, heavy look at the toll that sexual abuse takes on an adult psyche. Uh, Orlando Bloom has never turned in a better performance, and I'm sure that's why he elected to do this. He's a he's a grown man who who still is incredibly crippled by sexual abuse that he suffered uh, as a as a boy, and this is about reconciling himself to that when the man who abused him returns to the the town where he lives. And uh, I I shouldn't tell you any more than that, but just understand this film goes. It begins dark and it ends even darker. And uh, there is no redemption whatsoever in any corner of this film. But again, for those who are willing to take the plunge, that's entirely the point. So what about Orlando Bloom? Because he's an actor who maybe 10 years ago, everybody thought was the next great thing. And then he kind of went away or did some bad movies. Why is this movie important in terms of his career and what he's been doing in the intervening past couple of years? 
Well, I mean, he came of age doing, obviously, Pirates of the Caribbean and Lord of the Rings, and those were genre films, those were adventure films, and he was kind of being groomed to be a leading man in an Errol Flynn kind of uh, way. They wanted him to be that uh, that youthful, adventuresome guy who shows up in period films swashbuckling and sword-playing and looking good. Um, he eventually aged out of that because there's already always someone five or ten years younger who's nipping at your heels, and uh, he didn't have the chance to sort of age into another generation of films. That's what he's trying to do here. He clearly has the talent. Uh, it's just a question of whether people will make those parts available. Coming up on Film Week, my interview with producer and director Linda goldstein Knowlton. Her new documentary, We Are the Radical Monarchs, looks at the Oakland-based group that it's an alternative to the Girl Scouts, specifically for young girls of color. She'll talk about the making of her film and why the merit badges they give their members aren't for things like canoeing or woodworking. I'm John Horn, in for Larry Manuel. Film Week continues next here on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. I'm John Horn in for Larry Mantle this week. Earlier in the show, our critics reviewed the new documentary, We Are the Radical Monarchs. It's available now via PBS.org and the PBS app. It tells the story of the Radical Monarchs. They're an alternative to the Girl Scouts, specifically for girls of color. But instead of earning traditional merit badges for things like camping, the Radical Monarchs complete units on social justice and personal empowerment. I'm going to put you on a group. We're going to do a group activity really quick. I'm going to split it like right down the middle. Decorate the stick figure and you're going to write all the things society, the media, the movies, commercials say that a boy should look like, act like, and be like. And then this group is doing the same exact thing except for a girl. Oh, yeah, they always have to wear, like, um, sneakers. Like, pants. like Jordans. Yeah. Yeah. They have to wear always yeah. pants. And then they're always the superheroes. Yeah, they always so, have to save people. Wait. I save my dog. Oh. Um, Girls are supposed to have long hair. A lot of makeup on. Eyeshadow. They have to be a housewives, whatever that's called. The group started in Oakland in 2014 and continues to grow in other Bay Area cities as well as around the country. Producer and director Linda Goldstein Knowlton follows the original troupe of Radical Monarchs over the course of three years in her film. When we spoke earlier this week, I started by asking her when she first heard about the Radical Monarchs and at what point she decided to make a documentary about them. Well, I read about them in an article online in The Guardian. And it was when they had just gotten all of this attention because they marched in the first Black Lives Matter march in Oakland. And at the time they were called the Radical Brownies and they're these gorgeous girls and and they're wearing their Black Panther inspired berets and they're marching in front of a banner that says Radical Brownies. And so a lot of people took their pictures and you know, what is this? And most of the attention was was very, very good. So um, most. Anyway, um, so I saw this article and the article was entitled, Is This the Future of Girl Troops? And everything about girls, empowerment, women um, is, is all very centered for me in my work and just as a human. 
So I read the article and I thought, this is an amazing, amazing group and they're just starting and this would be an amazing film. I actually thought that it would be great right from the beginning because as I read the article, they were talking about Anivet and Marilyn, the, the co-founders, that they had started this group for 12 girls. And then all of a sudden there is this explosion of attention. So I thought, what is that like for two women who have community organizing jobs, who have families, and now they're kind of being tapped on the shoulder to start a movement. So I thought I, I was all in because nobody looks at that part of creating change. The Radical Brownies name gave way to the Radical Monarchs. I suspect maybe the Girl Scouts of America objected. What was the story about, about the name change? Well, thank you, Sean Hannity, actually. Um, in one of the Fox pieces done on them, uh, at the very end of it, he said, so I called the Girl Scouts of America to see if this is a real brownie troop, uh, which it's not, which they never said it was. And now the Girl Scouts of America know about the radical brownies. So they called on Yvette and Marilyn and had a very nice phone call and just said, we're getting a lot of calls in saying, this is horrible. I really hope you're not doing this in our troop. And the other whole set of calls where this is amazing. We want our troops to be doing this. So the Girl Scout of America representative said, look, this is a lot of brand confusion and we actually have the copyright on the word brownie as it pertains to girl groups. So it was a good opportunity because Anivet and Marilyn didn't want there to be brand confusion either. So they worked with the girls and had them come up with names and they voted on them and they came up with Radical Monarchs. I want to ask about Anna Vett Martinez and Marilyn Hollenquest because they are the people who found the Radical Monarchs, but they're also in some ways entrepreneurs and their startup isn't a cosmetics company or a boutique law firm. What they're starting up is an advocacy organization whose members are very young girls. And part of your documentary is really about what it means to start something as, as kind of business people in a way about a business plan and whether they're going to copyright and how they're going to put together lesson plans. Why was that so central to the story that you wanted to tell? Well, that was, it's a huge part of how do you, how do you start a movement? What, what are the beginnings? What is all the challenges? What are all the behind the scenes things that people don't see? Right. So when there was the women's March, right. People saw the millions of women and men marching, right. You, you see all of that. And, um, and that's also what happened with the Radical Monarchs themselves. They got all of this attention. They got requests from over 200 cities for troops. You know, so it was like, whoa, what's happening here? Um, and they couldn't scale that fast because they, they literally had no money. They're doing this for free. It was a side hustle on their way to being entrepreneurs. And people, because of the amazing things that they were doing and the social media that was out there, people thought, oh, they're a fully funded group which they weren't. And then another part that we, we, talk, we show in the, in the film is that as you're starting this non-for-profit entrepreneur kind of idea, it's not like you can just get a grant. You, know, you can't get those big giant grants, the multi-year grants. It's very similar to making independent films. You write these giant grants and you get 25 grand. Thank you for the people who gave us 25 grand. However, that doesn't that doesn't pay the bills. So it was really about, oh, you have who who do you know? It's about who do you know? And so for me, 
following that aspect of the journey, the creation and the journey and the growth of this group was central because you can't have a group without the work. We're talking with Linda Goldstein-Knowlton, the director and producer of the documentary, We Are the Radical Monarchs. One of the things that the monarchs borrow from kind of the history of Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts is this idea of like badges. Um, and one of the things that is different is that these badges require action. It's not something you put on your sash to get points for becoming an Eagle Scout. Part of the the rules or the organizing principles are you have to contribute radically to your community. And it's also when you get the badge, the work doesn't stop. And I am a recovering member of the Boy Scouts, and I went back and looked up merit badges. Boy Scout merit badges are things like Indian lore, wood carving. I mean, we can have a long conversation about Indian lore, but it's things that you do that are kind of fun, fingerprinting, canoeing, but it's not about change. So why was that so important to the radical monarchs that getting the badge wasn't the end, but kind of the start of your commitment? Yeah, very different badges. Um, uh, although a key component to the radical monarchs is fun, is joy, that because the work is so hard and because they're kids, right? That joy has to be instilled in the whole process. Um, but speaking to, I mean, that's one of the, my favorite things about them is that when you get the badge, the work doesn't stop. If you don't mind my saying, ahead of the film's release, you shared a story on Facebook about the health crisis that you were going through in the making of this film. And I'm wondering what the girls taught you about yourself or what lessons you impart they imparted to you as you're making the movie and dealing with your own health. I was diagnosed with breast cancer a month after we started making the film. That was something I had never done <laughs> had never done before make a film while um, going through all of that. And I have to say it all worked because of my crew. Um, the most incredible collaborator collaborators ever. Um, name them all, Katie Flint, Grace Lee, Claire Major, Giselle um, Contreras, and Suze Curtis Campbell. Anyway, all of that happened because of the crew. And I'd actually started making two films at the same time. I dropped the other one, and I knew in my soul that I had to keep making this film. And I truly believe it helped me get through all of the treatments, all of the surgeries, and it was an incredible gift for my daughter to be able to see I'm still working, that I still am working on something that I'm so passionate about and that I'm going to be okay. And also working with the girls, I looked, would look at them and they're basically the same age as my daughter. So they're giving me so much hope. I would bring that hope home to my family. That's Linda Goldstein-Knowlton, the producer and director of the new documentary, The Radical Monarchs. We'll have more of my conversation with Linda coming up next on Film Week on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. We'll be right back. Glad to have you with us here on Film Week on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. I'm John Horn sitting in for Larry Mantle. We're talking about the new documentary, We Are the Radical Monarchs, with producer and director Linda Goldstein-Knowlton. With the film coming out during our national reckoning on systemic racism, I wanted to know more about what that meant for the timing of the film's release. 
you are following this group over a number of years, and they're talking about things three or four years ago. They're talking about police violence, immigration, rent relief. And in the intervening years, if not just weeks and months, those become really important issues in the national conversation. So how do you think the film lands differently, given what's going on in the country today, than had it come out six months ago? Well, as I like to say, they're way before their time and they're right on time. Um, Kind of so is this film. My brother actually called me after a few weeks after uh, the killing of George Floyd and the, and the, this reckoning on race in our country. He's like, you should get PBS to air the film right now. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) Um, So I feel like on the one hand, it's, uh, it's incredibly powerful and hopeful that this film is coming out now because of this reckoning and to show that people of every age are affected and can actually take action and be powerful. That's what this group is about. It's empowering young girls of color to step into their brilliance. So on the one hand, you know, I was just talking with Marilyn and she said, it's, you know, history repeating itself. So on the one hand, all of this has been going on for so long in our country. And the fact that we're in this moment where it's really exploding in a fantastic way, finally. Um, It's incredibly exciting and powerful. And I hope that it gives people a lot of hope and and an understanding that they can participate and take action too. It also suggests that there are things that could be taught elsewhere, classrooms maybe, that wouldn't need to be taught outside. Things like how to be media literate, how to understand environmental justice, to understand pride, to talk about body image and about representation, because it feels like a lot of the curriculum of the radical monarchs is things that might be in an ideal world that the kids would learn in school or somewhere else. That would be wonderful. I mean, I learned about the Tulsa riots from watching Watchmen. It was never in any history books. I've been a social activist for a really long time. I had no clue. So as Marilyn says in the film, you know, if we want the Black Lives Matter movement to be over in 2036, we need to start teaching uh, social justice in schools like we teach STEM subjects. So uh, I, I just think that people are not getting this, this, this curriculum, this education, this understanding and unpacking. I think what they do so brilliantly is they unpack these issues for young girls, because it's not like kids don't know what's going on. It's not like they don't hear and see, right? And they can make up their own stories about it, or they can have understanding, empathetic people explaining it to them and walking through it and asking them, what do they know, instead of just adults talking at them. We're talking with Linda Goldstein-Dolton, the director and producer of the documentary, We Are the Radical Monarchs. What happens to audiences if they watch this and are moved? Do they start their own troops? Do they give money? Do they reevaluate sending their kids to Girl Scouts? What do you hope are some of the outcomes? The thing that they can do is they can go to radicalmonarchs.org and they can do a couple of things. One is they can contribute. It's tax deductible. If they have contacts for other funders, uh, please introduce the Radical Monarchs. You can email them there. And what you'll also find on their website is they have come up over all of these years, they have 
all of these years, five years, they've come up with a way for to scale involving communities helping to start their own troops. So they, since the movie uh, finished, they have launched four new troops, two in Oakland, one in Richmond, and one in someplace that I'm forgetting at the moment, which is terrible, um, San Francisco. Oh my God. Um, and they created a curriculum and a way to train all of the new troop leaders and assistants and the Radical Monarch alumni are a part of that whole thing of helping to choose the new troop leaders and to train them and be mentors to the, to the next troop. So my long-winded answer is they have a plan that you can now reach out to them and uh, have a troop come to you. I want to ask you one last thing, and that is about representation. A lot of what we talk about on our show is about why it's important to see people who look like you doing something that you might aspire to do. And there's a moment where the troop goes to the Capitol, and it's very moving about what the kids see and what they do, about how they imagine their own futures. Could you talk a little bit about that sequence and what it meant to you as a filmmaker and to hear the girls see these women of color who are running state government? I honestly, I just got goosebumps with that question because it was so exciting and so powerful and empowering. And those girls just walked in there and they were like, I can be here. I belong here. It was, it was astounding. And the, the personal experience I had in, in that moment at the end, we, we interviewed each of the girls, you know, what did you take from being here and this experience? And there was one girl who'd been very shy the whole time we'd been filming the film, three and a half years, and would really kind of not look me in the eye when I would interview her. And when I asked her this question, she just looked up and looked me straight in the eye. And she said, I'm going to be governor of California. And you know, I'm like, try not to cry, <laughs> you know, um, and that that's what that experience. I mean, you, you couldn't have believed it. So yes, representation representation, representation. You've worked a lot in narrative film, and now you're working in documentaries. What can documentary film do that narrative film can't? Because there's so much of this idea of like the imagination and fiction allows us to see a reality that documentary doesn't always do. How would you say that this documentary can tell a story that narrative film can't? Well, I think that with documentary, you have to be, and you can be so much more agile in terms of being in the moment. Real people, real people actually, except for maybe science fiction, um, are um, open the possibilities to so many more ideas because it's it's you're seeing people on the fly, reacting, doing, taking you places. It's all about the surprise. Um, and uh, actually a very smart producer friend of mine, Julie Lynn said that the, as a producer of scripted films, your job is to eliminate all surprises for the director. And as a director of documentary, it's your job to be open to all possibilities, to all surprises. So I feel like the human animal is a very surprising thing. And I feel like it gives the opportunity to really connect with someone who is either inspiring you or uh, is having the same experience of you, you don't feel alone. Um, I love scripted films, but I feel like documentary really uh, 
is a whole other level of exciting. Linda Goldstein-Knowlton is the director and producer of the documentary, We Are the Radical Monarchs. Linda, great to talk to you. Thank you. Great to talk to you, too. That's producer and director Linda Goldstein-Knowlton talking with me about her new documentary, We Are the Radical Monarchs. It's available to stream now on PBS.org and the PBS app. Thanks so much for joining us for Film Week. I'm John Horn in for Larry Mantle. Have a great weekend.